It's me, Dan, from Harmontown. You can hear episodes of our show and 30 others before anyone else on TuneIn First Play. The TuneIn app is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Podcast superfans get even more from their favorite shows. For four weeks, new episodes of Harmontown will be available a full 24 hours early, exclusively on TuneIn. Podcasts will release their new episodes early, including feral audio shows like Drinky Fun Time, Dome People Town, and Natural. Butte. Tune in is also full of content like live sports, news, music, and audiobooks. Get the next episode of Harmontown right now at the TuneIn app at tunein.com slash Harmontown. Something we know you got. Oh, now we sound normal, right? Now we sound like how it's supposed to be. Hey, everyone. I'm Johnny Pemberton. Welcome to Twisting the Wind, or also known as Twisting the Wind, also known as Twisting the Wind, or any other way you want to inflect it. That's a fun thing to do in, in normal life and regular life. It's just just change up where you put that emphasis. You know, like, my name is Johnny Pemberton. It's hard to say. It's a very difficult name to pronounce. Johnny Pemberton. But some people say, Johnny Pemberton. 
<laughs> Actually, no one says that unless they're maybe someone who's uh, new to English and they're a substitute teacher in, in a class that I'm not taking because I'm, I'm not substituting in a... I'm not. I'm not a person who's in those doing a. I'm not getting subbed in. No, no, no more do I do to get me in there with the sub sub boy. Okay, uh, you're listening to Twisting the Wind. You know that I've said that many times. You said who the host is. You, just, you said. Did you? Did you say who the host was? Did Did you tell them who you are? Yeah, I, I identified myself. Good. That's the first part of responsible journalism is identifying yourself uh, the same way that Anderson Cooper does that. Um, Wolf Blitzer, they make sure you know that they are who they are. Like, but either having uh, shocking hair and eyes that are clearly reptilian or by having a thick, thick, hoary beard and some some wireframe glasses. Cool, that's good. I'm glad I know how to be like those guys. Uh, if, you're, if you're tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast all about trying to be like either Wolf Blitzer or Anderson Cooper. Wolf came first, but Anderson is clearly kind of taking the cake on that. Um, America loves that type of man, especially when he expresses um, fake empathy in a, in, a, in a natural disaster setting, a setting that everyone's sad about even though it's uh, probably the least death toll of anything he could be covering. But that's what this... this, this uh... <laughs> Whoa! Why did you start talking about that, Pems? That's what this podcast is all about. It's all about trying to be like Wolf Blitzer and trying to be like Anderson Cooper. Just kidding, it's not. It's just... It's a fucking blaster. It's a straight-up uh, Jamaican downtown slip-snip, slip-stitch-and-pass fish fans. <laughs> Yeah. So if you're listening for the first time, uh, just buckle up. Just just lay, lay, lay down in the Delta groove and let the, uh, the smooth wash candle over you until the wax drips and you're going to have a hard on by the time you get those ears out of the, out of the mold. So do that. If you're returning to Twitter Dwin, uh, aka TT Dubs, aka my brother's, my brother's baby's boy, <laughs> aka the executive Branch, executive, no, executive, uh, buffet, hands on the branch, uh, new, new one, my brother's baby boy. <laughs> that is the new official third AKA for this show, my brother's baby boy. If you see me in person ever, please just say those words and I'll probably be like, um, what the fuck? And then you're going to be like, Johnny, remember you said to say my brother's baby boy is like a cool, like, wink and a nod that you are a twisting the wind fan. And I'll be like, oh, did I? Because something happens when I record this podcast where uh, I say something and then it immediately sends back this messenger ant into my brain and destroys the memory that was just created because it's some sort of a, it's a thing. It's a thing that happens. Not always 100% super, totally, mega, completely true, but for the most part, if it sounds like it's free-flowing off the tip of the old tongue, that means it, it is, and it's just sort of a thing that happened. Uh, it's, it's wind that was twisted in that particular shape at that particular time and may not be particularly twisted in that way ever again, but you can kind of say that way about everything, you know? I mean, a, a moment's a moment. You're gonna, you, you never play the same song twice. Is that what they say? Is that, what, is that what Mark Twain said? I just realized recently that Mark Twain said one of my favorite quotes about the whole looking into the whole abyss thing, you know? 
Found that out from the preamble to a streaming music video on a radio service. Wow. Wow. Good good work there, Scholar Pemberton. Yeah. Twain. Well, this, I've talked about Mark Twain enough on this podcast. You fucking get it. Maybe you don't. Listen to some old episodes. God damn it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming back. Uh, if you haven't already and you want to and you feel the inclination, you got that deep old, you got that tangle. You got a little of that dangle tangle. You know what I'm talking about? You got a tangle, tangle, you got a dangle and tangle tangle. It's all that's when, what it is, is when you got that thing dangle. You know, sometimes these gentlemen, you get that little dangle and you feel a tangle. But what happens is that tangle causes you to rearrange what's down there. You get those, those thrip, those triplicates, two, two tied, two, do two buddies in one little zone there. And you got that longer buddy who well, should be longer if he's dangling and he's, he causes that to tangle. So what you did was a dangle, tangle, dangle. You take, you tangled that dangle, dang. You had a tangle that caused you to dang, to dang, to tangle the dangle. Well, better get on there and get down and wrangle. If that's the case with you, if that's if I just <laughs> is that you? Do you have that problem? Well, then what I would suggest is rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or whatever other service it is you use to harvest this piece of audio. Fuck. Oh, I had it there. I had the sentence. The sentence lost me. Whatever you use to harvest this audio product. No, I don't want to say product because this is a uh, not vegetable. Uh, this audio wheat. This this wheat. Whatever you use to harvest this audio wheat. <laughs> that sounds stupid. Regardless, if you do rate and review the podcast and fucking subscribe, did you forget to subscribe? I know that. Did you forget to subscribe? If you did, if you didn't subscribe, do it now. Get your friends to do it. Buy a bunch of fucking computers. Buy like a big old bank of them. Buy a big old fucking Goodwill bank of them, and and set them up to just like like monkeys. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And then you what did you plug that fucking shit into uh, uh, speakers? <laughs> uh, get some powered speakers and put them everywhere and just blast this fucking blast this wheat into the zones. Your tears will turn into dancing. But the gifts of this finest audio wheat that has become harvested unto your table spoke Carmen's to the Benjamins. So do all those things. Also, if you're a big fan, if you're a fan, if you're a person who's enjoying this podcast, who's consuming it, um, donate. Go, it's very easy. People ask me on Twitter. People ask me stuff on, people, I mean, God, God love you. Or whatever, love you. Um, sticks. Sticks are God. I think sticks are the new God. Uh, sticks love you. Ah, see, you can't say that because people think about the fucking band sticks. How about, uh, uh, large pieces of wood? Um, limbs be the, limbs be the new, limbs be, uh, limbs love you. No, that sounds like, I'll just say wood. Pieces of wood, pieces of wood love you. If you're a regular listener and really loving it, you gotta fucking pay the tithe, motherfucker. Put that. Put some tithe in the in the fucking velvet pouch, will ya? It's easy. I was asking about stuff. See, I totally just digressed on my own fucking point. There is what is is everything you you need to know about the show, with the with a few exceptions, is listed on the Feral Audio page, uh, except for the intro song, which is you know people ask are always going to be asking me that until I die. It's not my song, but uh, Feral Audio. So you go to Feral Audio. You go to the twisting twisting the wind page on Feral Audio. You, and here's what you do. 
First, you click on that Amazon portal because you're just going to do a little shopping. And when you do that shopping, because you're going to do it anyways, you're going to buy those fucking dog bones you need in a couple days or whatever, whatever, whatever sort of uh, physical monetary thing you're getting to, to, to fill up your storage shed. Buy it through Amazon through us. Okay. That helps out. Fair lot of that helps out. Um, helps out the show. Um, 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 and you can donate, donate, donations are easy. You just click on that fucking button there and donate. It's all PayPal. It's all secure. It's all just sweet, honey. It's all honey like a bunny got money. You know what I mean? That's what they say about that. That's it and that's all, baby. God, I keep thinking about stuff I want to talk to you about, but it keeps slipping away. I do want to talk about ants though. Ants. I am having a fucking time with these little sugar ants. I left the home the other day and left for a couple hours, left the old home, and I, on the desk that I use at the house that is not where I am right now, just so you know, <laughs> just so you know, uh, it, 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 I, on it I set a, a nearly finished tall boy of coconut water in a steel, those good old steel cans, you know. Come back home, and there is a fucking procession to this can. It is incredible. There's a big zag down the wall. It's going on the windowsill. It's like, how do they... They found a way to get to this desk, and good, uh, they did it. And there are fucking hundreds of them, right? I mean, how do, how do you count those little black specks? It's hard. Because maybe maybe there's maybe there's 100,000. I just don't know. It's like, oh, is that, is that what 100,000 looks like? Wow, you, you had me there. I got. I, I would have said. Uh, I would have said twenty five. But <laughs> yeah, if, if you, if you, Mister Ant Scientist, say that's a hundred thousand ants there. Well, well, you, you got me. <laughs> um, so that's what happened. And this is not new to our house. So we have techniques. We, you spray them with some fucking uh, vinegar, vinegar f- window cleaner, and that just some reason that just deads them instantly. And I know I talk a lot about in this podcast about ecology and bugs and and how much I love bugs, which I really do. I never kill spiders. I mean, it's been said in, in fictitious lore and non-fictitious lore, it's bad luck. It's also just bad. Well, and side note, there's a couple spiders who I haven't killed who are living in this crooks of this desk that were having a goddamn feast. Like, I'm talking about seven or eight little of these baby sugar babies in there. And, um, so that happened. Uh, and I, yeah, I know I talk about, I talk about that all the time, but there's something about this particular species of ant that I fucking hate, and here's why. Th- these little bastards, when you smush them, or when you scare them, they let off a scent, which I, I gotta say, on, on repeated, on repeated, so many fucking viewings of getting this in my nose and on my hands, it is the worst smell in the entire fucking world. The, the alert pheromone from an ant, a tiny little sugar ant, it fucking is like, oh, I mean, it doesn't even make you want to vomit. I would prefer something that makes you want to vomit, because at least that's got like, it's, that, that's what that is. That's in that camp. These fucking little sugar babies, spits, sugar babies, what is it? It's like a bla- blaster death sweat. It's probably some sort of incredibly psychoactive drug. Drug. It is such a fucking terrible smell. And I, I implore you, 
If you haven't smelled this before, find find a friend who's got some sugar ants problem, who's got all of his everything he owns is in the fridge to combat these sugar ants, and he's spraying this fucking crap everywhere, losing his goddamn mind because he's they have troops out the millions that are just waiting to find whatever little granule of starch or sugars in your house and just just be like, okay, back it up. Find someone who's got that shit, and you you squish one of these bastards. The smell is just—it's like this—it's like a fucking chemical that came out of nowhere. It's so. Oh, I get it. I get it, guys. It it works. What it, I mean, it's—I gotta give them props, though. See, I gotta give them credit because what these little tiny tiny things that are so small they're kind of difficult to kill. You have to use. I mean, they're just tiny tiny. They have they've created this. They can create this scent that it, it takes a, a mammal my size. Like I fucking can't handle it. But the same sense, it's maybe like, um, maybe you'd have a nicer smell. I wouldn't want to kill you. They don't want to keep you around or something. I don't know. Either way, I want to say I'm sorry to the ant kingdom for for just really really hating on y'all. I mean, I I really do. And they get in my garden sometimes. Like certain areas if you go on vacation or the they'll find an area that somehow has, has become dry and they'll take it over. And you're pulling weeds and next thing you know you're covered in these little fuckers and they are they're letting off that fucking whoop 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 that freaking scent alarm and it smells terrible. It smells like a fucking borax factory burned down. I don't know. It's got this chemically, chemically blast. That's all, I that's, all I, that's all I wanted to say. Okay. But thank you so much. <laughs> uh, that's it. Here's the deal. Uh, you, there's more chances to see me live again. Who f- fucking knew? I'm going to be on this beautiful little not-so-many tour with Duncan Trussell coming up in the second half of August. We literally are taking the entire second half of August. Literally. The second half. If you took the, uh, August and seconded in half, we're going to be places that entire second half. We're going to be in Atlanta. We're going to be in Chattanooga. We're going to be in Nashville. We're going to be in Charleston. We're going to be in some other places, but that's basically it. So get on the calendar. I'll be back here with another episode of the podcast and I'll really, in a real fucking fiery display of classic rock and roll brutality and suaveness. We'll blast you a little, little information tour, tour thing. But know that. Just prep yourself. Think about where you're going to be and look up where I'm going to be. I'm also headlining in Charleston and in Wilmington and I think one other place. <laughs> wow. Good. Really good Pemberton. Really just great. Just, just definitely know things that are, uh, that are important to be factual about before you start. Don't, don't, no, 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 no. Dude, were you worried about the factual parts? No. Just, just barrel into it. Just fucking headlong barrel into it. Doesn't matter. No one's going to, someone's, someone's going to notice no they're not going to notice because you're fucking yeah so there you go Wilmington and um and in Charleston and I'll be headlining and so that's going to be that's going to kick off the tour I'm by myself for a cup for a weekend for like three or four shows and then Duncan's going to land via airplane or something we're going to rent these uh multiple cars we're going to do this weird thing we're going to lash them together it's the new cool thing i don't get it it's a southern thing and we'll be all over the place so so check your local listings 
and come see us. And uh, I'm going to have some, I'm going to, I swear to fucking God, I've said this a thousand times, but this is for real. And this is the impetus. There will be merch. There will be merch. And know this, you can't attend. That's okay. That merch will be available other places. After it'll be, it's not going to be the only time the merch is available. It's obviously going to be an online. It's going to be an, uh, an online thing. Uh, excuse me, is this, is this an online thing? Uh, hi, is this an online thing? Great thing to do if you go any place. Just ask people that, and they think they think they'll they'll think you're being legitimate because it sounds right. How many people just don't know? Is this? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, oh, this is an online thing. Okay. I'll go order at home and then come back to the restaurant. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you're full. Oh, oh, is this an online thing? Do I have to do an online thing first? Oh, I think because there's so many young people here. I could do that character all day, but I'm not going to do that. Okay. So basically what happened is I, I intended to have a segment on the podcast here, uh, talking to a garden expert because as you know, I love talking about that garden. And uh, through an email from a fan, which is twistingthewind at gmail.com, learned about this amazing farm in Canada called Goosefoot Farms, run by two brilliant horticulturalists, Ryan and Jessica. And they, uh, Jessica contacted me, and I spoke with Ryan about I wanted just to get some basic information about gardening. And the next thing you know, we talk for almost an hour about, well, I mean, you can talk, you can talk forever. You can talk for a thousand years about this stuff because it is, it's, it's the most interesting thing that there is because I've, I've talked about this a little bit with some people and we, even Ryan and I talked a little bit about this, but, but, but basically what I'm saying is that plants and everything like plants, they're aliens. They're aliens. It's just they, they're, they're not, they're not like aliens. They are aliens. Everyone says, ooh, that's weird. That's like an alien. That's as though that was an alien. Oh, look how weird that is. It's like a little alien. It's not. It is an alien. It's all the, they're all fuck, they're, we're all just visitors on the same planet here. Just the same way that this dog right now that's, that's, that's whining at me. Rabbit, say hello. Did you hear that just now? That was the sound of sniffing. That was the sound of an alien that lives with me that sniffs. But or or am I the alien that lives with her that sniffs? Either way, what is weird? I don't know. Ask a fucking pair of slugs mating if they think that what they're doing is weird. Ask any sort of weird biological proclivity. Does it do you do you think excuse me, do you think you're weird? Do it in a stupid British accent. And it's not going to say it thinks it's weird because it's not weird. So, aliens are aliens are real. Basically, what I'm trying to get to the point here is aliens are real. And I talked to Ryan Nasichuk of Goosefoot Farms, and it, we, we we had a bonding experience in terms of plants. Okay, in terms of where the plants are and what they do. So enjoy it. Just get just ball up in it. Get it, get it hot hot and ready. Get yourself hot and ready, and enjoy this conversation. This, I mean, this is this was. I learned so much stuff. <laughs> In a way, I was about to say, like, look, even I learned something. But I'm like, what a what a dumb thing to say. It's one thing not true. 
Anytime you, anytime you're in a position where you think you uh, don't have anything to learn, that's a bad place to be. That's a that's that's sort of like a a dangerous position to take. Like, okay, okay, well, we'll see what we'll we'll see what this guy's got to teach me because I don't think I've got anything to learn. I'm not saying I I'm not saying I took that position, but I'm saying that sometimes uh, with certain things you feel like you got it down, and then somebody is like, no. No, you have no idea. And that's how I feel about gardening, and especially this conversation. And, you know, I'm just belaboring the point here, right? I'm just, I'm just taking a, a wedge and driving it between your ears and all these other poo-poos and stuff, you know? So a couple things you got to know real quick. Rate and review, subscribe, donate, buy shit on Amazon, recommend it to people, write it on Sidewalk Chalk, Twisting the Wind with Johnny Pemberton. Thank you for listening. And, uh... We'll be back with some more of everything you like. Would you know that? Oh, my God. Ryan speaking. Ryan, this is Johnny Pemberton. Hey, Johnny Pemberton. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm great. Cool. I'm doing great. I'm just clearing some vines out of a bed here and uh, getting ready to plant it with something else. Uh, wait, you're, plant, you're, you're clearing what out exactly? I'm pulling some pea vines pea out vines. for the spinach for the oh, wow. sugar snap. So did you yeah, have, I'm getting ready to spinach. Did you have those in there to uh, nitrogenize the soil? Well, they do to a certain extent, but I right. think there's quite a few misconceptions about uh, the way in which legumes actually go about that. Are we going to jump right in? We oh, can jump man. right in. What you just said just Let's like got on. me. It fired off all these things in my brain. Just to say okay, misconceptions off. about off. legumes is very... I'm very excited. Uh, I, th I think we should let's just get right into it. Yeah, let's get right into it. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. Uh, you need to like, get comfortable or anything, or you need to find a sh spot of shade or whatever. I, mean, I think I actually am going to take a seat in the shade. Just okay, got it. Well, and I, I am recording, just so you know. I'm just saying that. So okay, I'm giving you the... Uh... Okay, so cool. um, legumes have the ability to fix atmospheric nitrogen, yes, in mm -hmm. partnership with either bacteria or algae. It seems to know there's some sort of taxonomic uh, argument what those what the creatures actually are, but the symbiotic, <laughs> uh, they're usually referred to as bacteria. Okay. And typically, like with peas, they're usually, I think, in the genus uh, Rhizobium. Right. And they live in, root, in and among the root system of the leguminous plant, and they're able to pull atmospheric nitrogen, which is N2 gas, which makes up about, I think, about 70% of the atmosphere is nitrogen gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, these uh, small creatures living in association with the roots of leguminous plants are able to take that N2 gas and fix it into a form that the plants can use. So it's exchanged into the tissue of the plant. And in exchange for that, the plant provides the um, bacterium with sugars from photosynthesis. Wow. So it's a give and take. So what I'm doing right now is I've got these pea vines that we've been picking for about four weeks and the vines are still green. The peas are pretty much gone. Uh, there's no more flowers being formed. Mm -hmm. But the nitrogen that was fixed, it's important to remember that that nitrogen mostly goes into the tissue of the pea vines. Okay, so, so when you're pulling I, them out, you're maybe you're getting rid of that. Well, I'm going to be composting them, so I will be fixing it, and I will be adding it back to the field, okay. but in a somewhat indirect way. But I want to plant 
and Mitsubai into this bed immediately. I'd like to do that today. So I do have the option of digging in the pea vines or have the option of laying them on the soil as a mulch and letting them break down. Uh, but if I want to immediately form a fine seed bed, I find that just digging them up and shaking off all the soil and composting them gives me a seed bed quickly. So what I do is I'm going to add a bit more compost to that bed, um, and I'm going to plant some seeds now. Wow. Of um, soil testing and a lot of sort of accurate remineralization work in our field. So um, the soil has been remineralized according to soil test results, and I think that that's of critical importance. Um, yeah, that's nitrogen being that's something I kind of learned, I learned the hard way with my garden is that uh, the mineral content is super important because for a while I had this really rich, earthy, really um, the soil was great, but it had, had was filled with like grubs, was filled with uh, this is mm. Calif- California scarab beetle. What are those little white guys called? The white larvae? It's like a grub. What? Are the, what's what? The, it's a... I'm, I'm from you. I've never heard of a California scarab beetle. But a beetle cool. would have a grub. I believe that's what they're called. The larval form of a beetle is a grub, I think. Yeah, so that my soil was filled with those things, which is a good sign. But also, it's a bad sign in the sense where there's not enough minerals. So, so I, when I once yeah, I well, added a bunch of minerals and stuff, it, the soil really took off. Awesome. What did you add? Oh man, I added like uh, I think some 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 oyster lime. I added uh, God, it's this mix. It's just mixture of stuff that this gardener named Jimmy Williams he he recommends this mixture of uh, I think it's some green sand, uh, oyster lime, Fantastic. probably. Geez, what else would it be? It's probably stuff that you use all the time. There's about 20, maybe 30 commonly used granular uh, soil amendments of various sorts, remineralization uh, ingredients, depending what you want to call them. Yeah. We use typically in our field, according to soil test results, we apply two types of lime, uh, dolomitic limestone and agricultural limestone. So that's calcium carbonate and, um, in the case of dolomite lime, also magnesium carbonate. Mm-hmm. And we add Epsom salt which is magnesium sulfate, uh, MgSO4. And we add sometimes bone meal, but we're moving away from it. We use calphos, which is rock phosphate, which okay. is a rock that's a pure rock mined out of the earth. Um, or in its raw form, it's mined out of the earth and ground up, and it's high in phosphorus and calcium and trace minerals. Um, we also use certain sulfate salts, um, namely zinc, manganese, and copper, Man. to raise the levels of those in our soil. And we use borax as well, which is mined out of... Uh, Somewhere in Southern California. God. Is that where you're at? Southern... I'm in Southern California. I'm in Los Angeles. Somewhere near, somewhere in the desert, I think they're still mining uh, borax, which is sodium borate. Have uh, you ever seen borax in the, like, 20 Mule Team is the brand yeah, we get yeah. here? Yeah, yeah. People use that for, for washing clothes. All kinds of things. Yeah, yeah washing clothes, it's started as a laundry, um, like a... It does something. It, it, kicks, gives... it kicks it up a notch. <laughs> That's right. It kicks laundry up a notch. Um, but it's controversial. A lot of this, everything I've just said to you is controversial. But, really? Um, In what with sense? Gar- controversial among gardeners? Or? Use of sulfate salts in particular, I think, uh, based on the soil testing I've done here where I live, uh, we're almost... Across the board, all the tests I've done have been deficient in zinc, manganese, copper, and boron, to name to name a few other elements, and um, quite deficient. And if those things, I mean, it is my belief that if those materials are not present in adequate supply in the soil, they will not be present in the food. And you can't always tell by looking at the food, okay. or necessarily even the food. I think that there's a lot of misconceptions that if something is organic, um, and a far, if a farmer has not used synthetic fertilizers or pesticides of any sort, that somehow that food will be nutrient-dense by default. I don't think that's true. And um, that's a very interesting sort of uh, 
side of agriculture that I think a lot of folks aren't currently that cognizant of when they're buying food at the grocery store. Right. I think we've kind of got this we've got this conventional is bad and organic is good, but mm-hmm. I think the nutrient density is what we should be talking about. I mean, among other things, it's very good that organic farmers aren't using pesticides. Don't get me wrong. I don't use pesticides or herbicides of any sort, mm-hmm. but um, I don't think it's necessarily the case that the organic farmer down the road is growing more nutrient dense carrots than the conventional farmer, you know, right. wherever. It's yeah. Cause you have this, oil. there's so many elements that go into uh, what composes the, the whole of a plant that there's, there's, there's just so many different things. So it's, it's a, uh, claim that just that Anything. one change is going to be significant. I want to ask you real quick, I want to just kind of kind of get like an introduction to your whole system, what you're doing. So you you run a, f- a farm in uh, British Columbia, right, in Vancouver or near Vancouver? Or? Uh, about 250 kilometers northwest, roughly. If you if you look at a map of British Columbia, okay. you'll see Vancouver Island. Got west. it. And if you, about two-thirds of the way up Vancouver Island, there's a town called Campbell River. Got it. And if you take... If you take a ferry for 10 minutes from Campbell River, you get to Quadra Island, and I live on the southern tip of Quadra Island. So what is Quadra Island like in terms of uh, ecology and, and weather, climate zone? Oh, it's, a, it's an amazing place. I mean, I'm from Vancouver. Okay. It's a bit dry in Vancouver. Um, it's gloomy in the winter, but in the summertime, it's often quite dry and sort of Mediterranean climate. So we're at 50 degrees north latitude, so we've got pretty long days in the summertime. Wow. Uh, right it's dark at like... You know, I'm out in the garden till ten something. Oh man! In June, I've been. I think working in the field is ten forty-five in June, wow. like late June. But um, gloomy winters. I like to travel in the winter, December and January. Um, but it's a it's a pretty good climate for gardening. Really, we have a long, slow spring and a long fall, um, and we have a great climate for a lot of things like uh, all kinds of greens and a lot of interesting Asian vegetables. Um, and my partner Jessica and I, we run a. It's small. It's like a, a market garden size. It's about a quarter of an acre of beds. Got it. Um, on the south island, on a uh, beautiful estate owned by a very forward-thinking businessman, and he. Uh, he seems to like us, and he likes our project and uh, helps us along. So well, we don't own the land, but we're on this beautiful 75-acre um, piece of the southern tip of the island, and it's got pretty deep soil, and uh, so you, it's a good place to what you're What you're engaged in is you're growing, but the the end game is to create a, a seed bank of sorts or to sell open-pollinated seeds, right? Well, that was the initial plan. Okay. Um, my partner Jessica and I, we do all this together, and we met at horticulture school about 10 years ago in Vancouver. And um, our original plan when we left the city in 2010 was to start a seed company. And uh, we had a name for it and everything, and we even printed out some envelopes. But we grew our first couple crops of seeds um, the first couple years and realized that we had a lot, we had a lot more to learn. Mm-hmm. We had a lot more to learn in particular about the genetics of food plants and about the relationship between soil mineralization and seed quality. So we kind of put the seed company on the back burner while we learned these things. Um, and we decided to start selling vegetables because there's massive demand on the island, um, much more demand than we had predicted before we moved here, being from the city um, for vegetables. There's very little being grown here commercially other than marijuana. Um, <laughs> Got it. There's a... a a market for high-quality vegetables and sort of also for uh, horticultural advice. And Jessica and I both work as horticultural consultants, and we do some garden work and some planning. And just generally people with their gardens. And uh... So, yeah, the goal right now is to grow food and educate people, and the long-term goal is to grow food and educate people and grow seed. Got it. Sure. That's really interesting. I'm looking at the pictures here. So you're, uh, you have a website, ryansgarden.com, but there's also a website for the, uh, the farm, isn't there? 
What That's you, right. Yeah, uh, goosefootfarms.com. Goosefoot okay. Goose. So people can check that and, out. Jessica mostly looks after the Goosefoot Farm one, and you'll find a link to her Instagram there too, with lots great. of plant pictures. Yeah, they're all so very pretty. It's just some. It's. Hey. I mean, I'm sort of. Uh, I'm so jealous of some of the stuff you're growing. It looks all so pristine. It's really, really incredible. Uh, especially all well, the. Uh, yeah, it's just great. Come up and visit someday. I would definitely it's, want to. Uh, it's definitely open, and we're Jessica and I are more and more interested in the idea of. Um, connecting with people and connecting people with really basic gardening skills because we found that there's kind of a gap in uh, horticultural education where sort of if an every man or every woman with a job, with a small amount of land um, or access to a small amount of land, if they want to learn to grow food in a really practical way, um, up here at least it's kind of difficult to find a really sort of hands-on, uh, let's get the basics first kind of course. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sort of theoretical stuff and you know you can go to university if you want or college i went to college um but most of what i learned was in the field and in other people's gardens and i think there's massive demand right now um at least where i'm at in british columbia for people to teach practical gardening skills and to not make it sort of um to not over intellectualize it and to not make it all um overly technical but to just teach people the basic things that our grandparents did you know right that's that's the thing i think a lot of people don't realize is that not that long ago gardening was not very special. It was the thing that everyone did. You kind of, it was a matter of a matter of just daily living. So, like the fa the fact that I have a, I have two garden boxes in our community garden across the street, and I garden all the time. And I tell people that, and a lot right. of times people are super impressed by it. But I'm really like, it's not that impressive. What I'm doing is is very basic, and it's what people, yeah. everyone used to do for a very long time because that's just that's just how you lived. Is you had a if if you had the means, even the slightest means, you would have a kitchen garden because. Because of course, because why not? Why would you? Definitely, of yeah. course. And I'm I'm fortunate that I have a or had a direct connection with my, um, you know, old world ancestry. And mm -hmm. my my grandmother was a refugee from Western Ukraine, and she grew up in a household of effectively peasants. And you know, they not only grew their own vegetables, but they grew their own grain and potatoes, and they grew their own hemp to make clothing. And this is all before the age of fifteen when she left. You know, so you meet someone like that, and it's like, ah, yes, there used to be this. Like, it used to not be something that would, like you say, necessarily be impressive, but it would be extremely relevant to your day-to-day -day life. Right. And uh, so, it's a beautiful thing, and it, it can be done in a city or a town. Or Like, I'm really a big, big proponent of not building raised beds, for instance. I, there's this kind of funny culture of raising up gardens. I don't know about in California, um, but in, in British Columbia, at least, particularly in urban places, people want to build raised, yeah, timber-framed beds. It's big in California, soil. for sure. Is it? Okay. Yeah. They want to buy soil and bring the soil in. And there's many instances where that's the only way to go. I mean, granted. But there's also instances where there's topsoil still in place, perhaps growing a lawn or weeds or ornamentals. Um, and we grow a lot of vegetables in, in uh, non-framed, slightly raised beds or on completely flat land. And that's another sort of uh, grandmotherly skill that seems to have somehow been lost um, in our, our quest for, I guess, intensive gardening. Um, so the, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of intensive gardening, but also extensive gardening. What, what, what is the difference? Well, what's the difference between extensive and intensive? And then we'll ask you about Intens the raised beds. Intensive gardening as a general sort of concept um, often involves planting things as closely as you possibly can together and, and still enabling them to survive. And a lot of gardening books um, and gardening education aimed at people who live in an urban setting uh, advocate this and planting things in a sort of, and there are certain crops for which I do this and there are certain crops for which it's, um, 
appropriate, but often it's advocated that all crops be planted much closer together than any traditional recommendations, and certainly much closer together than your grandmother would have planted them together, planted them because there's not much space, because we're in an urban environment. But I think that the uh, density yield curve would surprise a lot of people. For instance, if you've got, maybe you've got 10 square feet of garden bed somewhere and you want to grow tomatoes. Um, a lot of people would put four plants in 10 square feet. Um, I think that two makes more sense. Okay. And one would certainly, if you, as long as you've got a long enough season, one would probably occupy the space quite well too. So- and then that one plant will be extremely healthy. It'll have a huge root system. It won't be shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of other plants. It won't need as much water. Um, it doesn't even necessarily need as much fertility if it's got room to spread its roots. So there's instances where cramming everything together is really doing urban gardeners in particular a disservice. I did not know that because I, I, I'm a big, like I look at the companion planting chart almost every day because it's like, I'm, to uh, some extent it rules my life. Like I'm, I'm obsessed with companion planting. I think about it like this weird puzzle where I'm constantly like, oh, I can't put the put the borage next to the... Okay, that, that can go there, but they, they can't go next to... It's like one of those logic puzzles where you have to get the wolf, the, the wolf, the chicken, and the bag of grain across a river, but you only one can fit in a boat. So it becomes this thing where that's all I can think about. But think it, from what you just said, it makes it more sense where... It probably makes more sense just to have a little more space for things, and they would do do better. They would. It will often yield more as well, which is the really beautiful thing. So it's hard to get people to do this. Like what I just described, basically it comes down to thinning a lot of the time, you know. Like if you plant, do you grow beets, Johnny? I'm not, I don't like to eat beets. The one vegetable that I don't like to eat because I find that it makes, it has a, does a a thing to my gastrointestinal system, which is not pleasant. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I think I think that's common because beets, by by all accounts, I have a very healthy gastrointestinal system, right. but beets do amazing things to it, and they sort of hit some kind of flush button. Yeah, and everything. Uh, and they also, everything moves through it. It moves through, and then also it ends up looking like you're shitting blood, which may be the case or not the case. Either way, it's I don't like to I don't like to see that much red in the toilet. Fair enough. I'm going to use them as an example anyway. And chard, chard is actually the same species of plant, so you can swap beets and chard in your mind if you like. But if you look at a beet seed, it's actually a compound seed, and the plant produces a number of little seeds and sort of glues them together. Just That's naturally how they're formed. But when you plant beets, um, you know, often you'll dig a row or you'll scatter them or somehow bury them, you'll plant them. But more than one of those little seeds in the compound group will often come up. Mm-hmm. And if you leave them, as long as those clumps you planted aren't too close together, you know, you'll get a little clump of beets. But if the clumps, if the little clump seeds you've planted are too close together, each one might produce two plants or three plants or even four plants, and those clusters of plants are too close together, often what you're left with is sort of these sickly-looking little beet leaves and tiny little beets, and they don't taste that good, and it's generally disappointing. But I've found that if I give beets about five inches apart, each plant about five inches apart, um, and in our case, we typically put them in rows, you know, eight or nine inches apart, that's that's still fairly close together once the plants are growing. The leaves form canopy at that uh, spacing, but it gives them enough space to make nice, um, and it's it, they grow faster, and they taste better, and it's just generally, I find a much nicer experience, but it's hard for people, because you're effectively telling somebody to remove part of the plants they've just, you know, carefully gotten to sprout. Yeah, I find that's kind of hard in the community, in the community garden, is that people do not want to, because it's like they're so happy and surprised that something has grown, they don't want to take it out. And it's Definitely. it's hard. You, you gotta you gotta kill your babies. <laughs> it's the thing. It's the truth, and it's the truth in uh, Hollywood and with like editing and writing. And it's the same in the garden. You have to you have to some, to make 
everything to make some things work you have to take out other some things that you that you like to otherwise they'll, they'll they'll ruin the, you won't have anything if you allow everything to grow definitely and 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 nature does this as well and is not always totally benevolent right cuz it so cuz that that's how it's not how a lot of plants become sickly or diseased it's because they're stressed because they're they don't have enough space or they don't have the I mean, I guess I didn't, didn't realize how much space plays into it. I had no idea, really. I mean, I, I thin out stuff quite a bit, but I probably am just as guilty as a lot of other people of, of really cramming shit in there, and that's why my strawberries aren't as big and, what, what, you know, everything like that. Yeah, like it might be. We give our strawberries about a foot of space yeah. right now, and we, <laughs> we're pretty careful about pinching off runners, uh, unless we want to propagate that variety, but... Given a foot of space with runners pinched off regularly, uh, an established planting of strawberries will not only pretty much form a canopy of leaves, but will also produce a beautiful crop. Yeah, I um, have a bunch going, but they're, they're pretty thick. I need, need to thin out the plants. It's so hard, though, because there's such a jungle of plants, it's hard to kind of tell which is the more established plant and what is like what is part of what. Yeah, I just it confuses me. Well, find the main plant and try and work backwards to the runners. Um, okay. And don't worry about off runners because those little pups that they make, they typically will form a total mat if you just leave them and production will go way down pretty quickly. Yeah, I think that's um, what's happened. I think it's definitely what's happened. I, I thinned them out uh, not that long ago, but I didn't thin them out that much. But this is a pretty well-established patch. It's been there for almost three years now. So it's a thing where, like, um, yeah, some of it's very established. Even the soil level's even gone down considerably because it's it's in a raised bed. Well, that's what I want to ask you okay. again about is the raised bed thing because that's that is really that is a phenomenon at least in Southern California. I think other places uh, where people Definitely. are just like it's a, an addiction. And I've, there's a person I talked to on Twitter who's a listener of the show, and I see his pictures of his garden. He has a huge garden. It's it's not in raised beds. It's on the ground. I think it's somewhere in the Midwest or something. Where, but um, mm-hmm. I mean the big thing. I always thought with the whole raised beds was that, I mean, one obviously allows you to do a little more control of the uh, of what's going in as far as soil. But the the bigger thing I always thought was pests. Like it's easier to con- to keep pests out. But um, I don't know if that's really the case. But I mean, maybe you sh- you should talk about it. Let's yeah, let's talk about it a bit. And it's worth it's worth stating again that I'm not against raised beds. There are instances where I very much advocate them. But I think the first thing that you garden or when you're thinking about growing food in a spot is uh, is there soil here already? And I mean topsoil. Um, and topsoil is a pretty specific thing. And the word topsoil gets batted around a lot. And there's a lot of dudes all over the world selling uh, truckloads of material as topsoil that is very much not topsoil. Okay. Put it that way. What is uh, topsoil? There's, there's dudes selling real topsoil. Um, and real topsoil is just the living skin of the earth, effectively. Um, there was one. There was a book, a book about it. I think it's called The Ex- Ecstatic Skin of the Earth or something like that. That's, That's cool what topsoil book. is. Topsoil is the light. And sometimes it's thin. On a lot of my island here, it's an inch thick, if that. Um, but sometimes it's, like in the Midwest, you'd find topsoil sometimes 20 feet deep. Mm-hmm. But it's the living layer. It's the level, layer that's high in organic matter. It's the layer where most of the nutrient exchange in plant roots is going on. It's the layer where most of the fungi are. Um, it's the layer where most of the insect life is. So it's the, it's the top. And often if you dig a hole to look at the stratigraphy of the soil, you'll see quite a distinct, depending on the soil and geology, you'll see quite a distinct barrier. 
down, you'll have this either brown or black or various colored topsoil, and then there'll be a very def- definite line, and then there'll be some other kind of soil, or there'll be clay, or there'll be rock. Mm-hmm. So it's the material that naturally forms on the very top, um, mostly through biological action and weathering of rocks. So that's a uh, few. Oh, that's, um, that's what topsoil is. Now, if you build a box and you, then you're left with the question, what do I fill it with? So if you've built a box on land that has no topsoil, which is often the case in a, a suburban development or an urban area, often the topsoil has long since been trucked away, uh, sold or buried or whatever. But often the topsoil is gone. So in that case, yes, you build a box and you need to fill it with something. Um, and you're best filling it with, with the closest thing to topsoil you can get or actual topsoil if you can get it. But that's going to require a lot of, a lot of you work. Know, footwork or emails. Yeah, but you've got to check. And, and honestly, if I was building a raised bed garden today, I wouldn't fill it with anything until I'd send a sample of the material to the lab that I use. Mm-hmm. Um, can I promote a lab? Well, sorry, what was that? Can I promote a soil lab here? Because I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm about to start. Sending. No, do yeah, it. Yeah, Logan, Lab, Logan Labs in Lakeview, Ohio um, is who I use. And it costs $25 US to have a composite sample of of soil analyzed in a very good state-of-the-art facility um, in a result format that you can easily either perform calculations on yourself or plug into a soil remineralization calculator. So there is a lab, um, and you certainly don't need to have any kind of scientific expertise to learn to take a composite sample. Um, so I would be inclined to spend the $25 from a source that I was going to buy a bunch of soil from um, and then get the results and then think about whether I was comfortable trying to remineralize that soil if I need to and, and look at the lab results, and, and they'll tell you... Uh, I'll tell you a lot about what's going on, all in one shot. It's it's a beautiful thing for twenty five bucks. Got it. So that's when you do that, and you can know what to what to fill your bed with. If you're filling it with the right, you're filling it with good topsoil as opposed to something that's either dead or. Yeah, I mean it, it's it, it's so funny. I've seen so many different things happen in the community garden. You see stuff that you're like, how did a person think that that was the right thing to do? Like, how did they get to that point? <laughs> Like I love I love that as a title for a gardening book. That would be a great title for a gardening book. Yeah, how did, that, uh, how did they think that was the garden, right thing to do? Everywhere I go, I check out community gardens um, because they're an amazing. You can see laid out in front of you uh, dozens or even hundreds of people's different interpretation of how do I grow food. <laughs> and often they're all given a roughly the same amount of square footage, and often they all have the same water source. Sometimes they all have the same compost or manure source, depending. Um, but you can see different minds at work, and it's amazing because it really shows you that there isn't one way to do things. There's not one right way to grow any crop, really. There's a whole bunch of right ways and a whole bunch of sort of okay ways and a whole even larger bunch of terrible ways. But you can see the variety, and you can sort of pick and choose and Uh, community gardens are extremely useful as are farms as are organic farms but as well conventional farms and if you're wondering about like how to space strawberries or tomatoes or something uh, don't discount what you can learn by just looking at a a conventional farmer's field right because that's their that's their job it works if it works for the person who's growing them for a living that that might be a good way to look at it (laughs) It, it might yeah. be, and 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 with row spacing and plant spacing, um, it doesn't always have to do with uh, like often plants are spaced a certain way to allow their roots to expand, and the roots will expand well into the pathway and sometimes into the adjacent bed. Um, I've seen diagrams in books of the tomato, the roots of tomato plants and other plants uh, plotted out. There was a lot of studies done, I think, in Russia. Um, of all kinds of agricultural studies, but there's some diagrams that are available that show tomato root systems well over five feet deep and five feet wide oh, from yeah. one plant. Um, so that's 
going, you know, under your path and into the bed adjacent, potentially, and potentially into the adjacent path, depending how things are arranged. But sometimes what you see on a farm has to do with machinery as well. So it's important to sort of tease that out. Like some row spacing and whatnot has to do with getting a tractor into the field right. or getting a harvest field. But um, it's, it's value. You can learn information from any kind of garden anywhere in the world, I think. Can you, uh, so, so you're talking about how you educate people as far as with gardening, you teach all different levels of people. What's like some of the most basic stuff you talk about when you're, when you're first talking to people? Because you say, you were talking before how, when you, uh, how it's a thing where when you're starting off with the basics, it can be difficult because just misconceptions and just what people think is the, the right thing that's not and vice versa. Yeah. I usually try and give people a pep talk to relax them if they're about to if they're about to really start gardening and just tell them sort of what you just said like that you're you're going to be given a lot of information. I'm going to give you a lot of information. Uh books are hopefully going to give you a lot of information. Other people are going to give you information. And you're as with almost anything you're going to have to filter that information, but with gardening in particular there's a lot of old wives' tales mixed in with good science, mixed in with okay science, mixed in with something that worked for one person. And it's, I think it's very important for people to remember that every soil is different. And soils are like snowflakes, you know. They're all different. And and aspect is often different. You need, in my latitude at least, you typically need full sun for all plants. So we talk a little bit about what that means. And basically it means a south or a west or a completely open exposure up here. Um, and I try and sort of demystify that a little bit because you'll have some people will be out in a potential site and they'll actually time how long it's sunny at different times of year. Um, but it can be done with a, you know, a compass helps as well. So we try and find a good aspect and then we try and talk about soil and how, um, soils are different and, and testing is a very good thing and can be your friend. And I try and demystify that a little bit. And I try and talk about some of the, how mythology interacts with, uh, practical advice with soil. And there's a lot of, for a long time, I used a lot of horse manure. Um, and I still use some horse manure, not nearly as much as I used to. And I know a lot of people who use tons of horse manure. It's the only material that goes in their gardens. Um, and it doesn't always make for the best garden. And since I've started using quite a bit less horse manure, I've had better gardens. Now, my techniques have changed in other ways as, as well. But it's one thing I think to think about is that you don't necessarily need three inches of compost or manure or uh, chicken manure or whatever mm-hmm. incorporated into your soil to make it healthy. Sometimes what soils need is a balanced prescription, you know? Right. And uh, if you've tested it, you know what you're starting with and you're way ahead of the game. But even if you're not going to test it, I typically recommend people, yeah, first think about aspect and then think about if there is any soil on site and then think about what can we do based on previous results with soils here um, without testing, what can we add to the soil and make a good prediction will work in terms of granular amendments. Um, so we talk about just getting the soil ready, and then we talk about ways to get rid of turf, because typically what we have in sunny, cleared land, up here anyway, is grass of some kind or other, weeds of some kind or other. So I discussed the three or four major ways that I know of to convert that kind of ecosystem into a vegetable or herb ecosystem. What about Bermuda Namely, grass? I don't think that grows up here. No, we have a terrible blind Bermuda grass. It's just like, that stuff is so voracious, it's unbelievable. It's it, Does it have a rhizome, like an underground stem that has, creeps right below the soil? It's rhizomal, yeah, and it's it's amazing. It's a fucking alien. It really is. I don't know how, you just can't kill it. Like, there's, there's plants that actually seem 
Uh, aliens, almost a good word to describe them. I feel like I use that word to describe asparagus, which we've got that's about two or three years old now that's really starting to grow. And it kind of looks like it's from another planet. Mm-hmm. And there's a few other plants like that, too. Like, do you know morning glory? Yeah, I'm, I've been growing morning glories for almost uh, half of my life at this point. Yeah, it's I... beautiful. There's many species. But we have one species here that's a, a very much a perennial rhizomatous species that it seems like it's it's uncanny how well adapted it is to spread through what we're trying to do to the ecosystem as humans. Yeah, it's, and other plants it's very voracious. Follow. People people hate it, but but I think it's it just grows like a it grows like crazy. Yeah, it's beautiful. All all plants. I mean, I don't I don't want to sound like some preachy. I don't want to sound all preachy, but because uh, I'm not, I'm actually a pretty negative person except for about <laughs> gardening. But all plants are doing something, you know. Like, and all insects and all life forms are really. They're all doing something, and none of them, none of them are going to pre- prevent you from having a garden in a space, typically, unless we're talking about, like, big trees or something. But right. a lot of the time, there's things to live with them. And, you know, I have morning glory in some parts of the garden, and we coexist with it, and horsetail we coexist with. And, but some plants are definitely more able to just just do it on their own, like, um, yeah, horsetail, well, morning glory, opium. Oh, you said opium? <laughs> Opium follows people around. Yeah, it's a plant that follows gardeners around, and it seeds in such a way that, at least up here, I mean, it's been in every garden I've ever had. See, that's it's, interesting uh, you say that, because I, I have struggled to grow Papaverum siniferum. I've, I've tr- oh, um, sit down, son, and I will, I will tell you a tale of how to do it. Okay. Um, in one, you plant it in the winter. Right. I did that. I yeah. in the wind. I mean, obviously, Southern California is a little bit different than a lot of places, just because how dry it is, and especially how dry it's been lately. But I. This, so what's happened? What's that? What's happened when you've planted it? Well, this past year it was successful and did well, but it wasn't it nearly. It just I had to seed so much to get enough, and I'm, I'm thinning the seeds constantly as they're getting bigger. It's just something where um, I didn't. I didn't, uh, did not as many took as I thought. And this was like the third or f- probably the third time I've really, really tried to, to grow them from seed. Interesting. Well, the way that, the way that when I have cultivated, now it's mostly naturalized here, but when I have cultivated it, or when, when my, when my friend has cultivated it, uh, I, uh, lay it on the soil surface in the wintertime mm-hmm. and, and cover it not at all really, and then thin the plants. Um, to about a foot or even a bit more apart. Okay. Because they're very big. Yeah, they're they huge. They're big... really big. But it's also, your climate may just be a little warm because a lot of the places where it's grown um, commercially are very cold winters and then quick, quick warm springs. And then I think it's harvested, like the commercial crop, I think, in the Middle East is harvested in about April, May. Okay, yeah, that makes done. sense. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. remember reading that article Michael Pollan wrote about about uh, Papa Ver, uh, and he uh, talks about, well, I, a lot of people talk about that, just how there's this sort of misinformation about it, and actually it pretty much can grow anywhere, and it's not that exotic or special, it's just uh, it's that we think that it is, and because of that it's people, and that's why I always point out to people, like like the, you know, you know bus ads, like the, the bus bench ads, in Los Angeles, when they're blank, when they're not being used, the image that they put on there is a poppy field, and it's so funny. This, there's all there's all these images in, in popular culture and just everywhere that are pictures of of uh, opium producing poppies. And wait, Johnny, are you sure? Are you 
sure that the image you're talking about is papaver somniferum, though, because there's a bunch of other papavers, and they're sometimes like like the in Flanders fields where poppies grow. Those aren't opium poppies. Well, they're they're definitely not California poppies, which I know aren't even true poppies. Oh. I don't know if it's some different. Schult- I mean, we, they, uh, they look Schult- very much Schult- like. They're definitely poppies, for sure. And, yeah. And yeah, whether, sure. whether or not they're uh, somniferum is, you know, I, I, it's like an artist re- rendering, so it's, you can't exactly tell. Oh, I see. I still think, it, think it's funny that that this thing that is um, so, like, demonized is also everywhere all the time, and you just don't even realize that it's there. Yeah, and it's a, it's, uh, it's a very odd, because we create semi-synthetic opioids out of it that are mm-hmm. then you know, massively prescribed all over the world for all kinds of things. You know, like they, it's grown and the morphine is extracted and then that's turned into all manner of OxyContin and what yeah, have you. all kinds of weird offshoots that are unnatural and not as safe as something that would be. Uh, but it must yeah. be pointed out that even in its raw form, um, having used it a number of times in my life, I wouldn't consider it a safe compound. <laughs> yeah, not safe, but I, I suppose... Uh, safe in the sense to where the the chemical compound is, uh, I don't know, more organic, or at least it's closer to something that's that's you feel better about ingesting as opposed to some oh, yeah. thing that's who knows what it is. Create. I always I always go. I'm always gonna pick nature's lab over the lab with white Definitely. coats in terms of something that Definitely. I'm gonna eat. And poppies are really great plant to illustrate how people can take that sort of. If they want, they can take that power back because there's a lot of plants like that, that you can grow that can heal and mm-hmm. and be uh, very easily cultivated in amongst all of the other useful edible plants and fragrant plants and yeah. ornamental plants. I'm looking at this picture definitely... you have right now. Of this uh, this is some brassica. You say it's a ma- Mathiola longipetalia. Is that how you say it? Evening evening you... scented stalks. Oh yeah, I think it's Math- Mathiola. It's a brassica. It's related to broccoli and cabbage and all that whole group. It's in the same family. Got That's it. a remote. Hello. Oh, are you still there? Yeah. You said that. That's a remarkable. Is that what you're about to say? Cut out. Yeah, it's remarkable. It closes up tight during the day. Like right now, I can actually see it from where I'm sitting. The flowers are completely closed up tight. And then at night, right before it gets dark, or a couple hours before it gets dark, they open up wide and they release this exotic fragrance that's really just really otherworldly. So, I think I, could I grow those in Southern California, you think? I think that in Southern California, evening scented stalks would probably be like an autumn, winter, maybe okay. early spring annual. I guess because you're like zone eleven, maybe. I guess ten. See, we the zone thing is. Yeah, it's weird because I feel like that zone. Yeah, like you're saying, the zone thing is weird because it doesn't take into account microclimes and stuff. I think because I live by the by the Alley River in sort of a lower uh, depression, that I think we get we get a lot more um, a lot more moisture, a lot more dew, and just the weather is a little bit different. I think. You live near the Alley River. Yeah. So is there? I, I feel like I read an article recently about some kind of river. Are they are they cleaning up that river and making it like kayakable, or did I imagine well, that they already are? It's has it's been kayakable, but now people are kayaking in there. They have like a little thing set up during the summers where you can kayak down like a I think it's like a mile portion of the river, and uh, they're cleaning right, it up. Right. There was a huge federal grant that just came through. I don't know how many millions of dollars, but it's it's a it's a big federal grant devoted just for the river. So. I mean, it's not just for cleaning so much. It's going to be even bigger than cleaning it. They're basically 
going to change the whole nature of the river to be like how every river is in every other fucking place in the whole world where it's something you look at as opposed to have your back to make it like a focus, a focal point as, cause it, it the LA river is like soup is so maligned. It's absurd. It's like, if you said that word, people are like, what? Oh, gross. When really they've never even fucking seen it. Yeah. It really interests me. I'm very interested in sort of like where, Kind of what used to be wild waterways come into cities. That's that's amazing to me. Yeah, well, I'd love to see. It's pretty cool. This, LA's on my list. So. You should check it out. There's there's a great. I'm gonna have someone on the show eventually. Uh, this is project called Fowler Friends of the LA River, and it's run by this a bunch of geniuses who have really like for the past 20 years been ramming to get uh, some attention and money and all this other stuff for the river, and it's finally come to, come to fruition. So. There's going to be some cool Fantastic. stuff happening there in the future. Um, Fantastic. I want to ask you two things before we go. One, is there like a plant that you will, you can talk about that you think that a lot of people don't know about that's interesting, maybe just has some interesting uh, aspects to its growth or something that you think is uh, that really is, is interesting to you that people wouldn't know about? Oh, there's a bunch. Um, there's tons. I know. It's like a thing where that's it's like picking your favorite child of a, out of a thousand children but yeah here's one for you chrysanthemum coronarium um is a type of annual chrysanthemum and it's grown as a leafy green in a lot of east asia particularly japan in japan it's called i believe it's pronounced shungiku s-h-u-n-g-i-k-u um but it's chrysanthemum coronarium or garland chrysanthemum in english and it's a great green it's a great cool season green and it grows very well in interplants we were mentioning interplanting i've grown it quite close to other things with great success like what things um, and do you grow next to well i grew next to a new planting of strawberries and i i put a row of strawberries a foot apart down the center of a three-foot wide bed and i flanked the row of strawberries on either side with a direct seeded row of this shungiku in march and uh, starting in about late May and carrying on through till now, we've been harvesting the plants by just slashing them back and eating the shoots. And the the leaves and the flower buds and the new shoots in particular are just, they have this delicate, um, they have a beautiful texture and a really delicate taste that just works really well. And I do a lot of green smoothies. I do a lot of green smoothies with steamed greens. Okay. Um, sort of a paradigm shift for a lot of people, but I believe that some greens are best eaten raw and some are best eaten actually lightly steamed. Uh, and I try and eat a mixture of those two. But with Shungiku, I do both, raw and steamed and smoothies. Um, it's used in soups often. It's my understanding that it's often thrown in, um, like the type of hot pot that they make in Sichuan in, in southwestern China. I think that it's common to throw uh, Shungiku leaves in at the end of the hot pot and then eat the broth as a soup. Ooh, that sounds um, good. It's not generally cooked at high temperatures. Apparently that makes it bitter. Uh, but I read that years ago, and I've just never, I've never stir fried it or anything after having read that. And usually eat it raw or lightly cooked. And it's a beautiful plant. And if you let it flower, you get this great spray of like white, yellow chrysanthemum flowers. And what it's a wonderful plant. What would you compare it to as far as taste goes? As far as other greens, I feel like the texture is like good spin, good spring spinach, and the taste is is mild and somewhat unique, and maybe a little floral. Oh, cool! Uh, Sounds good. Yeah. That sounds great. And I'm, the other I'm try it out. 
That's worth trying, yeah, Shungiku, Chrysanthemum coronarium. And there's another plant that is, is more common globally, but is I find underused is the broad bean or the fava bean. Yeah, fava uh, beans, man. I love, those have the coolest leaves. Yeah. I love the way they look. They look like little, uh, kind of like, I mean, back to aliens, but they have that, they look up, their leaves are so aggressive looking. I love the way they, they're, they're so sharp. Yeah, you know? they, mother out weeds nicely and and the yields from them i find if i plant them early enough in the spring and give them a bit of space about seven inches between plants the yields are uh, often phenomenal and they're just a beautiful vegetable we eat them raw when they're young the ish after being shelled and we steam them lightly and saute them and whatnot when they're a bit more mature but the the amount of food you get is often phenomenal and they're cool yeah they're beautiful and you are still getting nitrogen, like to loop back to the start of the conversation. If you slash back your fava beans when you're done harvesting them and compost the tops, you're going to lose some of that nitrogen in the composting process, yes, but you're also going to, to keep some of it. So it will be, in my in my opinion, you'll have a net gain of nitrogen to your garden, even if you don't you know, till them in or, or, or grind them up into mulch in place. Got it. You certainly can do it. Now we're kind of like halfway yeah. through the summer growing season. I feel like at least, at least where most people are who are, are don't have the the crazy cool climate zones that we live in. Is there like some advice? Uh, you like maybe a couple of things you could tell people to um, either to keep get things going. I mean, I guess it's not too late to plant some stuff, but I just wonder if no. there's a couple of things right now to to throw out there as far as people who are uh, people who are gardening and have been gardening and want to. Just well, uh, the, the advice I would give is that most people have a much longer planting season than they think. I mean, I can't speak for Southern California or really most of North America. I can sort of speak for what would be referred to as the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. um, climate, which is where I am, sort of zone seven-ish. Uh, but we've got a long planting season. I, I'm going to be planting today. I'm going to carry on direct seeding things in the field through about mid-August. I think the last thing that we'll plant, other than garlic, will be in yeah, mid to late August in the field. And we're still uh, planting tons of flats of transplants and doing second crops. A lot of what I do at this time of year is, for instance, the spring planting of peas comes out and some uh, s- some uh, spinach and mitsuba go in there, or a-, a spring planting of carrots has recently been replanted with lettuce, or, you know, succession planting. And with many of my beds in this field, I can get two crops, sometimes three crops a year. Um, but well-planned successions help Help a lot. So if you know what, if you know when your garlic is going to come out, and you know what you're going to, like, and you possibly you already have some transplants ready to go in that place, you can, you know, you can get a great second crop often with a lot of things. Like we pull out carrots from the early planting and then plant um, zucchini, for instance, mm-hmm. and that enables us to get a great crop of carrots from the spring planting and then a great crop of zucchini starting in about August, September for an autumn. From a, from a summer planting. So anyway. you're talking about putting them in where they where the carrots were. You put the zucchini in after you've pulled the carrots out. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of our beds are 150 square feet, and if I've got 150 square feet of carrots, you know, I might harvest that over weeks, depending what we're doing with them and who's buying them. Um, and then uh, I've got plenty of time. If it's a, from a spring planting of carrots that I start harvesting in June, I've got plenty of time to put in a, a planting of cucumbers or zucchini in early or mid-July, particularly if I've already got them started from transplants. Cool. So, yeah, the bed will produce a whole crop of carrots, and then it will produce a nice late crop of zooks or cukes or other types of summer squash. Nice. Um, and there's a bunch of different things. Like we'll often take out garlic and we'll plant broccoli transplants, for instance, or we'll cut down our tomatoes in October and then we'll plant garlic right into the decaying root system of the tomatoes. No mm. need to pull that out. That's a good um, and idea. Lace. Yeah, that works beautifully with tomatoes. And, and we find that we cut them down and we typically compost the tops, plant the garlic, and then we spread any organic fertilizer that we're going to use that year. And then we put a bit of compost, some kelp, and some mulch just sort of in 
in layers, and we find that the garlic grows really well through the decaying root system of the, the tomato crop, and the timing works well, and, and it's a good no-till way to to switch crops. So you're not bringing up a bunch of weed seeds from the subsoil or from the, or from the rest of the topsoil, and you're sort of not disturbing things. And there's a lot to be said for that. There's some folks who take it to an extreme, and I actually used to take it to an extreme and used to be a real advocate of no-till gardening and permanent mulch and um, lasagna gardening only. And now we use some mulch and we do some lasagna gardening and sheet mulching and whatnot, but I do a bit more bare soil cultivation now, which I used to think was really wrong. I used to think that if, if land wasn't mulched, it was in a constant state of you know, uh, degradation and erosion and, and nutrient loss. And I, I guess it sort of is to a certain extent, but I don't think everything needs to be mulched all the time anymore. Got it. Yeah, I think the, mul- the mulching, I've, it seems like for, for Southern California, the main thing is just water retention to save on water. That's the weird thing. Even even in Southern California where we have, we obviously have a, a, wa- a huge water shortage, I find that hmm. still constantly um, overwatering is the death of everyone's plants. I went on vaca- I went on a tour for almost ten days, and I had someone watch my garden, which is it's never as good as when if someone watches no. your garden as when you do. And I mean, uh, she uh, she definitely watered it, but I'm pretty sure she probably didn't water it that much. And I came back to uh, this huge harvest, and I think it was because just because I wasn't there that much, even though it was some pretty hot temperatures. Those those roots are they're so deep they root can really they can hold on for a long time without water. For a long yeah, and it's and it ties directly into the spacing issue because it's related to spacing. And if you've allowed your tomato plant to have roots five feet deep and five feet wide, it's going to be a heck of a lot more drought tolerant than a tomato plant that's shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of others and has you know its root system and its top growth are both very much limited by competition with its neighbors. And in that case, you're going to have to water a lot more often. So in many instances, you can grow more food with less water if you give things a bit more space. So what about eggplant? Eggplant so I, is because I don't I don't grow any tomatoes anymore because everyone grows so many tomatoes that I feel like I don't need to grow them so i i've been uh, this year i'm focusing on okra eggplant and cucumbers those are my three main things and uh well eggplants are the same as that's the same family as tomatoes right correct yeah so i can kind of well it's eggplant they need quite a bit more heat than i have up here okay so last year we grew eggplant. i mean my our main limiting factor is just sort of uh, we often have dull weather and we're at 50 degrees north latitude. So I, I don't have quite enough solar energy hitting the ground to produce very good eggplants outside of a greenhouse. But eggplants I have seen growing in um, many different gardens in the tropics, often as a perennial. Um, and I can, I, I can recall seeing eggplants in Southeast Asia spaced quite far apart, grown with woody tree-like stalks that were a number of years old. Um, oh, cool. producing... So I don't know. You might you might have cold snaps that might finish them off in the winter, or you might not. But you probably have a much more favorable climate for eggplants than I do. If I was in Los Angeles growing eggplants and okra, um, I would plant them reasonably far apart. I would probably give my eggplants at least three feet apart. Oh, what? Uh, That's not the case for mine right now. I mean, I, I think uh, I, I think I might take one of them out because they're they're doing really well. Yeah. They're doing great. Uh, they're just well, the egg- yeah. The eggplants that I'm referring to that I saw growing as as tree-like specimens in the tropics were about, let me think back, about four or five feet apart. Okay, but Um, they're huge. Yeah, I suppose they must be gigantic. The tomato root system of five feet deep and five feet wide, I think, is a conservative estimate of how deep they can go. And an eggplant is probably similar given the right soil and sort of the right amount of initial... Uh, like a good stress-free early life, I think if given us enough space, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect an eggplant to have a super extensive root system too. And they're a long-lived plant. They're going to occupy your garden bed for quite a while. 
Um, and I think if they're well-grown, they're going to give you quite a bit of fruit. So, mm-hmm. yeah, one plant, if well-grown, could produce tons of fruit. So, yeah, I'd give them at least three feet apart. And if, honestly, if I had the space in a climate like yours, probably four or five. Yeah, I'm going to rip one of them out, I think, today. Because so. <laughs> it's, it's underproducing. I think it's being choked a bit. That makes sense. If anyone at the community garden... Um, gives you a hassle about ripping one of them out you can just say that some strange man you talked on the phone you know in canada this morning told you to i will no one gives me guff at my community garden i'm the compost captain (laughs) so you're the compost captain i am what's your composting system is it hot compost or passive compost it's uh it's i guess you'd say it's hot compost we have one of those it's a very very typical plan of the three bins that are screened in and they have a the uh, the boards you pull out from the front, and have you have one one that's ready to take out, one that's cooking, and then one that's uh, you put into, and so oh, yeah, and we um it's 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 actually been going a lot better lately because I don't know I think when I started adding a lot of uh, decayed leaf matter as the brown like I I'll go down down by the river and I'll just rake in a whole garbage a whole big garbage barrel filled with uh with like decayed leaf matter like aspen or willow i think it's aspen trees actually and so and i I add that like huge amounts of it after like every couple of days so to keep it real a lot of brown in there because people add a lot of wet stuff and people don't chop Mm. up their stuff very much so i have to go through there like every couple of days with a machete and just fucking break my back trying to chop up all this crap people put in there but it tends to be it's been heating up really well i put some i sprinkle some alfalfa in there when i can and uh, i till it as much as i can and it's it's it gets pretty goddamn hot um right yeah composting is a is a wonderful first thing to teach people going back to sort of what do you what do you teach people first i think composting is a really good place to start as well and uh just just showing people that it can be done really easily i'm a big advocate of um stockpiling materials when i can like i'll stockpile crop and i'll stock i we stockpile kitchen scraps and wet things in a separate rat proof container and we stockpile manure under a tarp and when we've got enough things and things like lawn lawn clippings and leaves and whatnot and when we've got enough things stockpiled we assemble them all in a layer method in a you know just a bin like you described made this one's made out of pallets and we we assemble it all at once and wet it down and it uh if it's turned after a couple of weeks and then turned again after a couple more weeks it's usable extremely quickly wow so what what is that called what you're talking about well that's called hot composting or thermophilic composting the creatures that are heating it up are thermophiles as opposed to mesophiles um and i think they're mostly bacteria and yeah they're just their metabolic byproduct just their heat byproduct of their metabolism is what heats it up to about i think it's optimum optimum is i think about 150 to 160 fahrenheit um, and we, we reach those temperatures hot enough to cook an egg. That's hot. And then when we I think tr- mine gets about 130 maybe, which is still pretty fucking hot. Pretty, but. I think that the difference one might find between sort of optimum and maybe slightly suboptimum, I mean, it depends who's optimum you're even talking about, but would be maybe slightly less sterilization of seeds and possibly disease. Yeah. I'm not really that concerned about that because we have a pretty good weed control program by hoeing and hand weeding here but um and i'm not too worried about the disease thing either but it is an issue sometimes like we find that tomato seeds no matter how hot it no matter how hot it gets the seeds from tomatoes that wind up in the compost um they seem to be all viable when we spread the compost the next spring and they're one of our main weeds now it's kind of it's interesting how that works i have a i have a watermelon growing in my garden right now it's huge and it was a, it's a volunteer oh, cool. and i uh um, i'd step over my watermelon what's that i'd love to grow I said I'd step over my own mother to grow watermelon. Oh, Sorry too, for listening to this. It's too cold there, huh? 
Well, we've got some melons, um, but they're really sulking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Too cold. So this is a volunteer from your compost? Yeah, I guess so. It just started growing. I had a squash one. I don't really like squash. I ripped the squash out. I think it was also competing with the okra. But uh, You yeah. don't like squash? I'm not a fan of squash. Never have been. I don't know why. I wasn't eating. I wasn't either until very recently, and then I grew some squash that blew my mind wide open, and I was like, oh, my God, what have I been missing? What kind and of I realized that there's... I like squash that's extremely sweet and extremely dry. It was actually seed smuggled over from Japan, um, and it, it's unbelievable. We got some more seed, and we got some more squash growing now, and they're these long... I mean, they're they're what would be referred to as a winter squash. They're definitely Curcurbita maxima. Uh, there's four major species of squash grown and they're in the maxima group and they're extremely dry and extremely sweet and they're just i roast them and they're this beautiful i mean they just change the way i think about squash your mileage will may vary because some people don't like any kind of squash but yeah. i found that i was eating spaghetti squash which is really bland or i was eating like squash that didn't have very much sugar and was really moist and kind of gloppy and it didn't do anything for me but when i discovered this kind of dry sweet stuff totally changed my impression what's it called again well, this is just some kind from Japan. I have a the the Japanese speaker that I am friends with knows the name of the variety in Japanese, but I can never remember it. Um, but it's a law. It's Kirkerbita maxima for sure. It's okay. definitely in the maxima. Um, and in maxima, in the maxima family, you'll also find the pink banana. Um, and a lot of the squash that up here are just sort of nebulously called kabocha, which is just the Japanese word for squash. Um, but a lot of those are the sort of maximas too. And buttercups are maximas as well. Mm. I find that maximas are, um, the tastiest squash. They seem to do the best for us up here. Cool. So much information. I'm, I'm very, I'm very pleased. So it's, I'm just, uh, it's fun just freestyling here about gardening. Like it's nice to just have a conversation about, it's the one thing I listen to a lot of podcasts and it's one thing that I always want to hear on podcasts that I almost never hear is discussion of gardening and discussion of sort of plant-based nutrition. And those two things seem to be completely absent. And even discussions that are leading in that direction on podcasts, I find often, they often veer off at, you've got to eat a well-balanced diet and take some mineral supplements or whatever, you know, <laughs> take a multivitamin. But, but, but the discussion of sort of Soil health as it relates to plant health, as it relates to sort of human physical performance, seems to be absent. And I mean, I'm not a doctor, but uh, it's, there's got to be a connection, you know? I think so. It's a, it's so. all one big uh, circle of death. <laughs> I think It's, <laughs> it's beautiful, though. It's empowering. Yeah. It's one of the only truly empowering things I've found in my life. Like, really, really fundamentally em emancipating is to be able to grow and, and uh, hunt a portion of my own my own food and trade a portion of my own food and just to be involved in that whole cycle has really uh it really feels empowering it is yeah so, so does eating strawberries until you're sick that you don't have to pay for totally uh, so totally it's goosefootfarms.com it's also you have ryansgarden.com and uh yeah I'll, people can check that out thanks so much for talking to me ryan really appreciate it i appreciate like the opportunity john and if you ever come up here, you're certainly more than welcome to come and uh, enjoy the farm with us. Great. And uh, we, should, we should talk again maybe uh, a little before this next spring to get people in the mood and kind of give, get some uh, kickstart the, the growing season when it returns back around again. Johnny, I'd love to be on any time. All right. Be well. You too, Johnny. It was great to talk to you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Groundbreaking 
kindness intellectuals. <clears throat> Thank you for listening. Please enjoy this song from a man named Kid Hum from his new album, Fossil Fuel 2. This is the first track. I love this entire album. It's like listening to a bath. If a bath were able to be listened to. I do. Take me over here and break my headphones. You think it's messing with me? I will have to bust, 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 bust,
Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com.